This is the Insight is Capital podcast. Sandy Liang is President and Fixed Income Portfolio Manager at Purpose Investment Partners. The views expressed in this podcast are those of Sandy Liang. Your thesis is that credit risk is a much better fixed income risk to take than interest rate risk right now. Uh, it is right now, and uh, um, I, I think that what's happened, not even just since the, bo- the bottom was in July 2016, where you know U.S. Treasuries were at 1.4%, but even if you look at the activity this year to date with Treasuries, at one point they had been, uh, Treasuries had gone from 240 to 290, um, in that microcosm, um, you know, long-term treasuries in terms of the TLT, which is the big exchange-traded long-term treasury fund, was down almost 7%. Um, high-grade credit was down 3 And uh, within our fund, um, we're staying away from interest-sensitive double B, and, and, you know, we've actually managed to make money this year. And, and, and you know, I, I know like anyone else, short-term performance is not that meaningful, but um, if you look at the hierarchy of returns, uh, what should be happening is actually happening. There's a chance that given a, a risk-off market, the 10-year yield and longer will drop if there's some kind of an exodus in the market. But that's not that's not a reason for investing in fixed income right now. No, and, and I actually think that that's a short-term phenomenon. Uh, that, that is. Be a trade. Yeah, it's a trade, and it's because people have been conditioned for that trade. But if you look at the underlying drivers of long-term interest rates, um, there's a very uh, significant correlation with nominal GDP growth. And if you looked at a chart going back to the 60s of nominal GDP growth versus the U.S. 10-year, um, it's basically one on top of the other, and that would suggest today that in the absence of any central bank support for the bond market, um, the U.S. 10-year should be at roughly 4%, and uh, you know, as you know, it's just inside 3% today. Um, and we also know that over the next two years, this environment of central bank support for the bond market that's been around since the credit crisis is rapidly going away. So, you know, the Fed is not supporting the bond market anymore. In fact, they're doing the opposite. They're giving bonds back. Um, the ECB has talked about um, reviewing the program as, as soon as September of 2018. And uh, Japan is quiet, but I think Japan has quietly actually been cutting back on buying bonds. They're quiet because they don't want to affect conditions in the market. Yeah, and, and on top of that, Quebec, uh, they don't, they haven't had a program that's been geared on um, dollar value purchases. They've been targeting a, um, uh, a long-term bond yield. But uh, I think the the, uh, the numbers that have come out of Japan are that recently they have been supporting the bond market less. So what do you like right now? Like, given given your thesis, are you looking at paper that's yielding a superior return to what's available elsewhere and on also a shorter duration? Yeah, I mean, just starting with duration, which um, duration is a mathematical number, and everyone always asks us what our duration is. The mathematical duration of our fund is 2%. Um, but statistically, uh, a fund like ours actually shouldn't have duration because if rates go up, then there has not been a correlation with returns. And kind of going back to what you asked before um, about, um, you know, rates going up is a good thing. Actually, in the 13 times when rates have gone up in the history of the high-yield debt market, it's actually return in those periods um, 8% annualized. And, and 
that roughly holds in the period since July 2016, um, the high yield market has actually done uh, not that different. I mean, within a couple percent of that number. But um, so, Sandy, do you think part of the difficulty with I mean, everybody's looking for yield, and there's a good chance they might go looking for yield in the wrong places, which has happened, obviously, in the past. Um, yeah. You know, we know that very well, that chasing yield is is something that, that has caused people to make a lot of mistakes, not just people, but large institutions. So there's a lot of misunderstanding or not understanding how these things work, and that's that's a very big part of what you do, which is you know not only understanding it, but being able to explain it to just about anybody is, is probably the biggest challenge there is for, for what you do. Absolutely. I mean, okay. we had a conference call um yesterday and one of the questions was well if rates are going up does that mean everything's overvalued and uh, you know it may be the case that valuations for financial assets and real estate assets have been stretched i mean i'm pretty sure that's the case since the central banks have been supporting the market but um if i can invest capital with a duration of a couple years and uh make you know depending on the investment i can make five percent seven eight nine percent um I am going to be reinvesting that capital when I get the money back. And in our market, bonds rarely mature. Um, in our market, what happens is that companies will refinance and call the bonds. And when they refinance, they have to pay the prevailing coupon at the time. So um, there's a there's a, a significant floating component of what we do. And so that's where that's where you actually benefit from rising rates. Absolutely, because uh, if rates go up, then the coupon for all the new bonds goes up, and we lose our old bonds, and we get paid back, and then whatever new bonds we roll into will be at the prevailing coupon at the time. So looking so. at looking at, at uh, you know just looking over some of your past thoughts or and current thoughts as well, one of the asset groups that differentiated from this all both rising market is corporate credit. Yeah, I, I think that um, in, in a rising rate environment, which is what we're in right now, um, you really have to uh, be cognizant of, A, not taking very much duration risk. So we're trying to stay away from bonds that have a long term with low coupon. Um, and, B, you, try, you have to try to find situations where you get your money back sooner rather than later, and therefore you can recycle your capital um, and get whatever the prevailing coupon is. So, um, you know, it's a funny thing where sometimes there's market volatility and it hits every risk asset class. There's not much you can do about it. Uh, a great example is um, the taper tantrum 2013 because you remember that uh, uh, in 2013 it's when the Fed first started talking about not um, – uh, cutting back their QE and cutting back the amount of monthly QE. And uh, in the spring of 2013, there was a lot of volatility. Um, and everything went down. And, and even in the spring of 2013, even loans went down, even though loans are you know mostly variable rate. Um, but over the course of that 12 months, um, equities did fine and high yield credit did fine. Uh, the returns were, you know, not far from their historical average, even though there's a spell of volatility in the spring. And uh, treasuries did not do well, and, and high-grade bonds did not do well because high-grade bonds have a lot more um, interest rate risk than credit risk. So, um, you know, I think that the answer is to, uh, you, you know, you really have to acknowledge the environment that there that we're in right now, um, and tailor your investment strategy to those asset classes that have done well when rates have been going up. To what's to what's going to work in this environment? Yes, 
Yeah. Your strategy can adapt to any situation in the market, whether rates are falling or rates are rising. So if the Fed was wrong and the and the economy turns uh, recessionary sooner rather than later, um, we could have falling rates again, right? Uh, we absolutely. I mean, I think that one of the risks in the market right now is that it's very clear we have a rising rate environment. The Fed's raised rate five times. It could be another three to four times this year. Um, you know, there's some very large swaths of the economy that are interest sensitive, including housing and autos. And, and so if we start to see, you know, early signs of a slowdown, um, then we're going to have to change our strategy. And, and, uh, you know, the good thing is we don't run $10 billion here in fixed income. And so, you know, we're relatively, Nimble, but um, you know, so we're going to be watching things like uh, mortgage purchase applications. It's a weekly number that comes out, and and right. it's a volatile series. But if you look at a four-week average, you can get a good picture of what's going to go on the housing sector. Um, we're looking at auto sales come out monthly. Um, I think uh, you know a more interesting number to watch every week is the unemployment claims because. Um, there's not a lot of time series in the states that you actually get weekly. And looking at the number of people applying for first-time unemployment benefits is almost a real-time view of what's going on in the economy. Um, and the number of people in the states right now getting fired has not been this low since the 60s. Um, so that tells me that uh, there's not very much slack in the economy in the states and, um, and that the economy is growing. What are some of your favorite investments? Um, wow. What are my favorite children? Uh, we are invested in, let's see, we own the bonds of a company, a private Canadian home builder called Mattamy Homes. Um, right. and, and I'm going to talk about this one because right down the middle of fairway, middle of the fairway in terms of what we do. Uh, Mattamy Homes bonds, there's various issues that trade uh, sorry, that have a coupon in anywhere from six and a half to uh, almost seven percent, and they generally trade a slight premium. So the yield that we make in Mattamy is somewhere between six and six and a half percent. And the great thing about Mattamy is that it's very uh, the asset value is very tangible because they're a home builder and they're two thirds in Canada, roughly. Um, and on their balance sheet, there's the value of their land, working process, and cash. And when you're lending to a home builder, it's good to have um, a one and a half time to one multiple at least. And uh, this is a case where Mattamy, on the book value of the land and working process and cash to the debt, uh, we're getting over two times asset value protection. And that's on the book value. But we also know uh, Mattamy being a uh, company that um, is Toronto-based, um, we also know that the actual fair market value of those assets gives you more like three times asset value protection because they bought a lot of their land holdings uh, in the mid-2000s. So that's a situation where we're making a pretty good yield. Um, our, uh, our, you know, the, the term of the investment is not that high. It's uh, in 2021, 2023, and we're making 6%, and we have effectively three times asset value protection. And, and granted, it's a pretty cyclical business, but... Um, you know, anything relating to housing, relate to housing can be cyclical and it's kind of akin to writing a mortgage where the, uh, the, the homeowners put two thirds equity down and you're making 6%. That seems like a pretty good risk reward. It does sound pretty good. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you can find, 
50 of those in diverse industries, then um, you know you can have a portfolio that uh, you're confident in in terms of uh, delivering some income and, and not really getting out on your skis in terms of risking the capital to get that income. So that's one that we like a lot right now. We've lent money to a company. It's a private company, and you can actually look at the website. It's called Vistajet. And Vistajet has been one of our better holdings over the last couple of years because we've been involved in this company since the perception um, of their creditworthiness has not been as high. Uh, Vistajet is a very simple company. They own 72 large private jets, um, not the kind that a Wall Street trader would get for a weekend to go to Aspen, but more the kind that a C-suite CEO, CFO of a Fortune 500 company would use to visit far-flung operations and things like that. And and so there's a secular trend that we like in this business because Fortune 500 companies ever since the early 2000s in the credit crisis um, have been have been defleeting. It does not look good for shareholders when companies have uh, fleets of corporate jets. And actually, in the fall of 2017, GE made a prominent announcement. They said, we're not going to own jets anymore. So that trend is good. Um, yeah. So what this company does is they sell airtime in their fleet at $15,000 an hour, roughly. And um, the great thing is you get a VistaJet plane, and you know you're getting the same high-quality service, the training of their staff, uh, the catering, how the jet looks. I mean, everything is uniform in these planes. So it's almost like uh, an airline, but it's purely um, it's private flight, and, and the, the kinds of users of this product only fly private. So what we like about this company is that, uh, number one, the debt that we have, there's actually significantly less debt than asset value in the planes alone. So even if this company did not exist, uh, we get our money back in the planes. And it's not a, you know, it's not a two to one, but it's definitely a one and a quarter, one and a half to one asset value ratio. Uh, but number two, because this is a company that's growing, has um, an, an earning stream, and you know, there's a lot of ways to monitor that growth. Um, we, we think the company has a cash flow multiple value that's probably somewhere in the 12 to 15 times area. And lo and behold, the company in the middle of 2017 raised equity, both debt and preferred equity, or sorry, uh, common and preferred equity, uh, that's valued the company at more than twice the debt that we own. So, um, you know, based on the equity value, there's two to one asset value protection. There's value asset value protection. And, and we like the supply-demand concept in their business. And the business is growing. Uh, they're growing so quickly that they're deleveraging roughly a turn a quarter. So their debt to EBITDA, their, their EBITDA is growing at such a pace that their debt to EBITDA coming down a uh, turn a quarter. So they're deleveraging rapidly. So listening to you, Sandy, I can understand why the legwork that you have to do in order to determine whether or not you're willing to lend money, it's a lot of work, pretty intensive. Yeah, it's a lot of work. And, and you know what, Pierre, um, I benefit from the fact that a lot of these companies that we're involved in, we've been involved in for years and, and we'll lend to them multiple times. For example, just back to Mattamy that I've talked about, uh, I think we participated in three different bond issues by them. And uh, we met management. Uh, we've gotten to management over the years. So it's a lot better when you can lend to companies multiple times. I mean, even just even though most of what we do is in the States and we hedge back to Canadian dollars, I'll use the example of Air Canada. Um, we first got involved in Air Canada in 2012, and the initial Air Canada bonds that we invested in were had coupons of nine and a quarter and 12 percent. 
uh, and those got refinanced in 2013 at coupons of uh, seven five eighths and six and three quarters and eight and three quarters. Um, and the most recent, uh, then they did a seven three quarters issue, and the most recent bond issue for Arcana is a four and three quarter percent coupon. But, um, you know, over time, we've actually been in every single one of these iterations of the Air Canada bonds, and the credit profile has improved. Um, obviously, you can see that in how the stock is done. Um, and this most recent deal of four and three quarter percent, I mean, it's not a top 15 holding anymore, but we're certainly comfortable holding it and knowing we're going to get, or thinking that we're going to get our money back uh, with interest because we've been involved in this company for years. It's one thing to uh, explain what you do to an advisor who has a really great likelihood of understanding it in the way it should be understood. But getting investors to understand it, to warm up to it, um, because people don't understand it as much as they should or need to at this point, it's probably the only thing that's keeping them from, from making larger commitments to it or any commitment at all. Yeah, and then the other issue is that... Uh I don't know if, if, I don't want to seem unpatriotic, but I just feel like in Canada, everything learns what they know from the same newspaper. And if that newspaper takes a certain stance on an asset class or an investment or a company, um, it, it's tough to get out from under that, especially when, uh, you know, as portfolio managers, we'll travel the country to go see advisors and, and uh, the advisors will reflect what their clients have said. And uh, you're right, it's a real education process and, and it's about, um, you know, also diversifying your source of information. Yeah, my sense of it is that more people need to know about what you're doing and how it works. And and it needs to be, I think probably the hardest thing is to be able to explain it so that anyone can understand it, right? And I'm sure that means coming up with a lot of analogies. Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. to, to, uh, to account for, you know, to account for the gap in, in understanding it because transferring that knowledge to investors who ultimately become your investors, that's the difficult part. And then keeping them there long enough for them to, to realize the uh, the fruits of the investment, especially in this environment where yield is hard to come by and interest rate risk is so high. And I, I think investing for yield is, is a much more uh, uh, informed um, decision than, uh, you know, just because... Yield is presented in so many different ways, and, and there's nothing more irksome than seeing an advertisement uh, based on yield or rate of return. Um, I had someone close with me uh, in the family ask me, well, uh, uh, about a certain advisor. I said, well, what is it about this advisor is good? And, and um, that family member said, well, the advisor uh, gets their clients 15%. Uh, and people think that that's a meaningful statement, but you and I and, and uh, advisors know that that is not a meaningful statement, but um, I think for the investing public, people that do other things for a living and are not involved in investing think that that's actually a meaningful statement. Yeah, it's a very dangerous statement. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it's potentially, it's a very dangerous statement. You know, that's a, you know, that, that's, an, that's, a, that's a red flag. That's an alarm. What? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, I look at the same, like, I'll give you an example, and I'm not saying that this is a horrible sector, but you know, MLPs, people are quoting yields on MLPs all the time. They say, oh, my gosh, the yield is 7% or 8%, and, uh, oh, and it's it's a toll booth kind of business, but at the end of the day, MLPs are equities in companies. They're not debt. They're equities. So 
um, there's no guarantee that you get anything back at the end because they're paying out their cash flow. Yeah, the distinction isn't the, the proper distinction isn't being made between what the instrument is. Yes, like you can't compare exactly. You can't compare uh, the yield on an MLP bond with the yield on an MLP equity, um, even though it's the same company and, and pays you. You know, the yields uh, may be similar, they may be different, but they're completely apples and oranges. So, Sandy, in conclusion. It's much better right now, given the rising interest rate environment, it's much better right now to be focused, uh, in terms of uh, seeking yield, to be focused on assuming credit risk versus uh, interest rate risk. Absolutely. And I, I mean, that statement, I, I wholeheartedly agree with. You're, yeah, the Canadian 10 years inside 2%, by the way. So. Yeah, so you're gonna you're gonna take a ten year uh, duration risk on a ten year, yeah, for a two percent yield, and you're right. gonna hold that to 2028 or 2000. By the way, by the way, if, if your ten year uh, is if the so it, just for perspective, in the first month and a half of 2018, the U.S. ten year went up um, 50 basis points. And 50 basis points in, in a month and a half is a lot of volatility. So um, if you look at a Canadian 10-year, if that bond goes up uh, 100 basis points in yield, if the Canadian 10-year yield goes up 100 basis points, so it, it goes to just, uh, I guess it's uh, just inside 2% to something that looks more like what's going on in the States, inside 3%, you're going to lose 5% of your capital right there in that bond. Um you're going to get it back over time, but you know what? It's going to take you ten well, years. Yeah, if you to hold it, if you if you if you hold the bond to the maturity, but you're you're going to experience in in the meantime while you're while you're holding that 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 uh, ten year, you're going to you're going to experience all of the downside, which could potentially force you emotionally force you out of it and then take a loss. Yeah, but by the way, I take that back. I think the Canadian ten year is just over two percent. I'm thinking implied the implied inflation rate long term is is. Uh, um, under two percent, but um, Sandy, how many of the holdings in your fund have a ten-year maturity? Oh, none, none, because um, what's the, the longest, what's the longest maturity that you own? In, in uh, roughly five years, six years at most. New issue, uh, non-investment grade corporate debt. New issues are never more than eight years, and they're most commonly between five and eight years. So right. and they what's the average maturity of your holdings? Well, the duration, which takes into account that the fact that coupons are quite high, the duration is is roughly two years, which means that on average you. So, yeah. So at the worst, let's say you got into a credit fund right now, like yours, and six months or a year from now, the economy changes and interest rates fall. I'm assuming, you know, that at your end, you would obviously make appropriate changes to the portfolio. But from the investor's standpoint, if, if the average duration in your funds in corporate debt and high yield is two years, what's the worst thing that can happen is they get their money back. Right? Exactly. Yes. And uh, the money ends up in the fund, and then and then you decide what to do with it. Obviously, it rolls over. And we reinvest, which is what which is what we do. We but reinvest. At, at least, at least, if the worst case scenario is that you were wrong. On the on the interest rate direction, uh, six months six months to a year from now things change. Giving the average duration of let's say two years, at the worst you would you would get the yield that you got in for, that you paid for, 
and you would get the you would get the principal back. Right, but just to be clear, I mean, the worst case is we lose some principal, right? Because um, it's a default. Yeah, like can't you know you can't make breakfast for without breaking a few eggs. So um, can't make an omelet omelets all day. I don't know. It's one of those. Uh, I, I'm mangling up that saying just like uh, George W. Bush would, but um, <laughs> you, you understand what I'm getting at. Sure, you you, you have to. You, it's better you want to err on the side of caution, right? <laughs> yeah, but, but, but you know we can't. Uh, no risk, no reward, right? So um, there's times in the high yield debt market where companies uh, don't, in fact, pay you back a hundred cents in the dollar. And when companies default, they'll, you know, on average, pay you what is it, forty cents in the dollar, uh, which happens on occasion. But um, usually, uh, almost exclusively, when that happens, you have some fair warning because companies don't just report one bad quarter and go out of business. It's, it takes a while, right? But given that the, I mean, I don't want to make the mistake of, of quoting a 2% default rate as some reason to ignore risk, but it's been pretty low, hasn't it? I mean, default it's, rate. yeah, and that's the thing about this environment. Defaults have been very low, uh, and with synchronized economic growth around the world, um, it's hard to see defaults really picking up a lot. And the kinds of companies that are going out of business in this environment are kinds of companies that have flawed businesses, and, and that's what we're trying to stay. Oh, and that was that was uh, iHeartRadio, for example. iHeartRadio is a great example yeah. of, of they're in a flawed business. They're in traditional radio. Sandy, the two main funds that you run, one is Strategic Yield, the Strategic Yield Fund, and the other is yes. the Credit Opportunities Fund. What's the what's the difference between these two funds? Um, I would say the the difference is that Strategic Yield Fund is it's a mutual fund. Uh, and it's a fixed income go anywhere long only fund. So, um, we have made a strategic decision to be mostly in high yield because we don't want a lot of interest rate risk. We'd rather have credit risk. Uh, and that fund we've been running since January 2012, so it has a, a track record going back quite a few years. Um, the other fund, the Credit Opportunities Fund, is available by OM only, and it also has a track record of more than a few years, but it only goes back to June 2014. And um, that fund is a little different because it's for two reasons. Number one, it's a vehicle for our top ideas. A lot of times we do a lot of credit research on an issuer, and when you get to a situation where you've met with management, you visit the facilities, you talk to competitors, you have a thesis, sometimes when you feel strongly about something, you want to put more than 2% weighting in your fund. So the Credit Opportunities Fund actually has higher weightings. It's roughly half corporate debt right now, and some of those weightings are anywhere between uh, 3% and 8% of the fund. Um, but the other reason that the Credit Opportunities Fund is different is because it's more of a, a total return fund uh, without the long-only market exposure. It has a significant cash component, but we're also able to do, because the OM structure, we're also able to do creative things where, for example, in that fund, we're long inflation. If inflation, if inflation rates go up, uh, or implied inflation rates that are in bonds, then that fund is actually going to make money from that trade uh, or from that investment. Uh, we're able to do that by going long Canadian real return bonds and shorting the corresponding Canadas against it. And, and by doing that, we've isolated um, the inflation rate and, and we'll do better if the inflation rate goes up. Um, and also in that fund, occasionally we buy equities 
Uh, it's never going to be a primary component in that fund, but we can be up to 20% equities in credit opportunities because uh, a lot of times when you're doing a lot of credit research on the company, um, the best idea you get out of the cap structure is not actually the debt, but the bonds. And uh, uh, I'll give you a couple of examples. Like, for example, in the past, we've owned Air Canada um, in that fund. And more recently, uh, a year and a half ago, we did a deep dive on Bombardier. And Bombardier, uh, as people know, has been in the midst of a transition where they spent a lot of money on one particular um, plane, the C-Series. Yep. Um, and when we concluded our research at the time on Bombardier, we found that we didn't think the bonds were actually particularly attractive, but we thought the equity was quite attractive. So uh, we have owned Bombardier equity in that fund for a year or so. But uh, so that's the kind of that's why that fund is different. It's a flexibility. Um, it's uh, you know less just long only, and it's a vehicle for our top uh, research ideas. So it has a slightly lower internal yield. And it has a slightly lower internal yield, yes. And it has a growth component in it as well. Yeah, it has uh, an equity component in it. Sorry, pardon me, an equity component. And that, that's that's where it differs from the strategic yield fund, which is which is uh, purely a uh, credit fund? Yes. A corporate fixed income and high yield fund? Yeah, it's prim- it's a long-only uh, fixed income mutual fund. And it has a it has a higher yield of around six percent. Uh, yes, and and that's in our in our fund fact sheets. We will actually say what the internal yield is, and, and okay. I believe in strategic yield right now, the internal yield in that fund is slightly over six percent, um, and the internal yield in the credit opportunities fund is roughly four percent. That's terrific. Thank you very much. Thanks, Pierre. Appreciate it.